Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Salt to Soul right here on 101.9. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiedman. Great to be with you here this wonderful afternoon as the holiday of Shavuos is fast approaching. Let's talk about that today. As we know, Shavuos is a short but significant holiday. And while it might not have many ceremonial rituals, we don't have a Pesach retreat Maybe a good idea for a Shavuos retreat in the future. No giant menorah lighting. You know, cheesecake is delicious, but doesn't quite make the cut. Yet, in its own way, Shavuos is the most important Jewish holiday of the year. It's the day that God gave us the Torah. And if not for that, where would we all be today? As the Gemara says, Ilav Hayoyma. If not for this day, Kama Yosi Havabashika. How many Rabbi Yossi's, how many Mr. Yossi's they would be in the market. If not for Shavuos, there wouldn't be a Pesach or a Hanukkah or High Holidays or Purim or Shul or Shofar or Matzah or Shabbos or anything else that's Jewish. We wouldn't have a Jewish past or a Jewish future. What would our heritage or destiny even be? This holiday of Shavuos it celebrates not only my personal birthday, but actually your birthday too. It's the birthday of the Jewish people. It's the foundation of all of Judaism on Shavuos. And therefore, it's most appropriate that we should familiarize ourselves with the events, the impact of this day, and talk a little bit about the celebrations of Shavuos. So as we get ready for this great holiday next week, we're all prepared and geared up for it. So let's start with some of the events that led up to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, which is what we celebrate on Shavuos. Of course, a couple of weeks back, we were celebrating Pesach. And Pesach commemorates our exodus from Egypt, our emancipation and liberation from slavery. What happened next is that the Jews weren't just freed from slavery, but it was freedom for a purpose. And they knew that their destination was to head to Mount Sinai to pick up a Torah, to receive the Torah there. And so six weeks after their exodus from Egypt, they arrived at Mount Sinai. But during those six weeks, there was a lot that happened. It was, let's call it, a tumultuous period with ups and downs, with highs and lows, with good times and challenging ones. First, of course, was the exodus from Egypt. After all, the ten plagues, and finally they were liberated and freed. Then the Egyptians realized, where is their workforce? Whatever happened, how could they have let their slaves go? And now they began to pursue them. And of course, as we celebrate each year, seven days later, was the splitting of the Sea of the Reeds. And so we celebrate that today on the seventh day of Pesach. That event was one with lots of drama, plenty of anxiety, and of course, our gratitude for all the excitement that this event entailed. Then there was a time three weeks later when our ancestors ran out of provisions, 
and God began to deliver the daily portion of sweets from heaven called manna. Of course, after that, the people got thirsty. They ran out of water. And God formed this fresh water spring in a rock, an oasis in the desert. And in fact, that rock would travel with them and accompany them for the next 40 years as they sojourned until they reached the land of Israel. That was followed by a brief but fierce skirmish with the tribe of Amalek. They attacked the Jewish people unprovoked. And of course, that caused us untold heartache. After their triumph, our ancestors arrived finally, six weeks after the Exodus, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that was on the first day of the month of Sivan, the year 2448 from creation. Now, on the second of Sivan, the second day, Moshe climbed Mount Sinai, and God informed him that he had chosen the Jewish people as Mamlechet Kohanim Kadosh, as a nation of priests, and Hashem offered to give us the Torah. Moshe descended the mountain. He relayed this offer from God to the Jewish people. And of course, without blinking an eyelash, the Jews accepted. The next morning, Moshe climbed up Mount Sinai again, relayed our consent to God, and God proclaimed that he would appear at Mount Sinai and the nation would hear God intoned the commandments to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe again descended and he reported this to the Jewish people. But we asked Moshe to return to God and ask if Hashem would be willing to speak directly to the nation rather than through an intermediary. On the fourth day of Sivan, Moshe climbed the mountain again and he relayed this request to Hashem. And guess what? God agreed with the proviso that the nation had to prepare for the next few days. And hence, the first three days of Nisan are called three days of our preparation. Sorry, not the first three days of Nisan, the three days preceding Shavuos. And so the Jewish people prepared as we commemorate today as well. And so it was early in the morning on the sixth day of Sivan. God appeared on the mountain with all the flaming fires and the thunderous sound, the fireworks, as you might call it in today's lingo. Thunder and lightning, as the Torah describes it. And this unending crescendo of the shofar's blast that was heard and the entire Jewish nation stood there. In fact, they fell back in fright. Amisha urged them forward and they formed ranks around the mountain. And God descended onto the mountain, so to say, and intoned the first, the first two of the Ten Commandments, beginning with the very first one. Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am Hashem your God. We'll talk about the commandments in a moment. But what's interesting is the Medrash tells us that the Jews were not the only people that received an offer for the Torah. In fact, we were the last ones to receive the offer. Only after it was refused by all the other nations did God offer it to us. Perhaps that was God's way of knowing that and, and, and faith or 
it's a reverse kind of faith. We usually have faith in God. Here, God had faith in us, knew that we would accept it. And so after God solicited all the other nations, that's when God went to the Jews. And we know what was our response. It was immediate where we didn't ask what's in it. The joke goes, we asked how much. And when God said free, we said, okay, we'll take two. Jokes aside, the other nations, according to the Medrash, each one asked questions, what's in it? Don't steal. Well, how do we make a living? Don't kill. Well, that's our nature. Don't commit adultery. Well, incest is our way. You know, each one had another reason why they were reluctant. But the Jews simply and succinctly responded, whatever God says, na'aseh nishma, we will do and we will hear. And notice that the na'aseh, we will do, came before the nishma that we'll hear, we'll understand. This was that they would accept whatever God said, even without knowing what it entails. On a deeper level, the word nishma actually means to understand and to appreciate. So they were committing to observe the mitzvahs to accept the entire Torah, whether they understood and appreciated it, or even if they didn't. And one wonders, why did our ancestors, in fact, not only our ancestors, I keep referring to ourselves, us, because according to tradition, every single Jewish soul that was ever destined to exist was present there at Mount Sinai. Why would we accept a binding, life-altering document without even checking what was in it. Unlike the other nations that did the sensible thing, ask what's in it, and if it's not, it's, if it's unsensical, if it's not something that, that is rational, that makes sense to you, then don't accept it. You know, if somebody asked you to commit to some kind of contractual agreement for a lifetime of service, it would cover every facet of your life in intricate detail. Would you accept this without reading the contract? You know, as they say, don't read, don't sign the dotted line until you read the whole Megillah. So no lawyer in their right mind would advise you to accept such a deal. Yet our ancestors and our own souls that were present there then did exactly that. We accepted the Torah. We said, Nasev and Ishma, we will do and we will hear without even knowing what that entailed. If you think about this, we to this very day, we hold up their acceptance as an example of virtue. Why is that? Now, in a sense, you could say that our ancestors did know what was in the Torah because the Gemara says that Avraham Avinu, and by default, of course, his wife, Sarah Imenu, that they kept all the mitzvahs, including the rabbinic enactments, the mitzvahs, the rabbanat such as Eruv Tavshilin, as the Talmud tells us. So if that's the case, then I think there's an even deeper question. If they had the Torah anyway, why did they need this great event of Shavuos, Matan Torah, where God gave it to us? If anything, they lost out then, because before Matan Torah, the mitzvahs were optional. Now they became, in, you know, obligated, obligatory and Infractions became punishable. So why would they enter into an agreement that appeared to have to offer no benefits? In, in fact, you might even want to say only drawbacks. And so 
This is a question that we'll please God talk about when we come back in just a moment. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Salt to Soul right here on 101.9 IFM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievan. Great to be with you here this afternoon. And we are talking about getting ready for the fast approaching holiday of Shavuos. And we left with the question, why would our ancestors accept the Torah? Would anyone in the right mind accept a contract and agreement without knowing what it would entail, what was included in it? And let's talk about that by first understanding the commandments themselves, the very first commandment. Now, I want to ask you a question. You know, when you fly in an airplane, the pilot wants to make an announcement. It always begins with, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. The captain never starts off with, I am your captain. Yet when we look at the Ten Commandments, we see it doesn't start off, this is your God speaking. Rather, it begins, I am Hashem, your God. Anochi Hashem alakecha. Now let's understand, what does it mean, Anochi? The word Anochi, I, it conveys our very, very essence. It can't be captured in a word or a picture. Can you, you know, capture yourself? Are you broad or tall or beautiful or bold or fat or slim or fit or trim? Adjectives can describe our outer superficial elements. But the word I, it's my quintessence. It's my very essence who I am. That cannot be described or defined. It's just me. At my core, there's only me. No one else exists in that space. It's my space where I get to be me without regard for others. And we each have a space like that. We guard it jealously. We don't share it with others or let anyone else in. That's our own intimate, unique space. Yes, we interact with others, but that's more from an external space. right? When we adapt ourselves to the interests and sometimes the demands of others, our friends interact with our social selves. Our family interacts with our emotional selves. Our Teachers or students interact with our intellectual selves. Our colleagues or coworkers, they interact with our professional selves. None of these are the true us. The person who is social, the person who is intellectual, maybe the person who is emotional, that person doesn't come out or shouldn't come out. That's where we get to be ourselves from the safe space that we emerge to interact with others. When God introduced himself to us at Mount Sinai, Hashem did not introduce himself by a title or a name. God did not reveal an external aspect or an extension of himself. He showed us himself, right? God showed us himself in all his glory, grandeur, beauty. But those were all secondary. His first introduction to us was Anochi. Hello everyone. This is me. The real me. The real unadulterated, unmitigated, unadorned me. After Anochi came the next description, the Hashem Elokecha, the Lord your God, again dealing with varying levels of interaction and engagement with the world. And Hashem being more God's name of mercy. Elokecha, Elokim is God's name more of discipline. But Anochi, 
is the very essence. And Hashem began with Anochi. Why did God share a part of himself that no one ever shares? Let's think about this. In life, if there's one person with whom we share our very essence, the only person we might ever invite into our most private, sacred space, who would that be? No doubt, our spouse. Now think about this for a moment. Why is a wedding such a happy occasion? After all, if you think about it, a man and woman who had been perfectly free their entire lives, independent, autonomous, they're about to throw away all their independence and become indentured to each other. Why is that so exciting? Why are we celebrating? And the answer is that they're not throwing away their freedom. They're establishing a connection, a bond. There are many types of relationships, but none compared to the depth and grandeur of a marriage. You think about different types of relationships we have. Maybe with colleagues, with coworkers, with friends, with family, with, with teachers, with students. But none of them are ever invited into our deepest intimate selves. Every social bond has its limits. If someone tries to explore too much, we know that, you know, asking too many questions, getting too personal. If they invade our space, we put up boundaries. We don't let them in. The only one that's an exception to that is our spouse. A spouse is different. Our spouse is invited into our deepest selves. That space that we kept jealously hidden for years, the circle that was closed to anyone, reserved only to ourselves, that intimate space is open to one and only one person in the entire world. We invite them to touch us in an essence-to-essence relationship. You know, they say in marriage, I think Groucho Marx is the one who said this, Man and woman become one. The problem begins when they have to figure out which one. We know a wedding is so joyous because two people invite each other into their very essence. And such an invitation by the person we love is so overwhelming. It's it's humbling. It's joy-inspiring. It's something to be cherished for a lifetime. Friends and family, everyone who comes, all the guests rejoice because the chassan and kala, the bride and groom, have exchanged the quintessential gift of a lifetime. Now let's think for a moment if we could apply this analogy to our experience at Mount Sinai. Our sages taught that the day that we received the Torah, which we celebrate today as Shavuos at Mount Sinai, was like a betrothal. When God opened us the words, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am Hashem your God, He was talking to every Jewish person individually. God was offering us a personal relationship. He said, I want to be your God. Just like a man would say to a woman, I want to be your husband. He was offering a relationship. God was extending His hand in marriage as it were. He was saying, I would like to be your God. Would you like to be my people? Just like a husband and wife share their very essence with each other, God offered to share his very essence with us. And hence, 
Hashem says, this is me speaking, my very self, with no veil or curtain to hide behind. I want to place myself in your hands. I want to trust you with my most vulnerable, intimate, and private treasure, my very essence, myself. God was asking us, are you willing to have me? And of course, we know our answer was immediate and binding. Yes, of course we declared, we want to be your people. If this is a proposal, we accept. And of course, when our ancestors stood at Kriyat Yamsuf at the Sea of Reeds, they already expressed their great desire for a personal relationship with God. Remember, we say it every day in Davening and Az Yashir, where we say, Zekeli, this is my God. They didn't say, Ze'elokeinu, this is our God. They said, Zekeli, this is my God. Each Jew desired a personal relationship with Hashem. So, little surprise then, that when God asked for our hand in marriage, we accepted. Our ancestors were thrilled by the offer. They cherished it. They, accept, they accepted this offer from God with, without haste. Without, did I say without haste? With, with haste. With, with, in, a, in a heartbeat. Without batting an eyelash. So when I asked you why they would accept a lifetime contract of service, would you accept a contractual agreement without reading the contract? Now, if we're honest about it, we know that in our personal lives, we wouldn't do that with a regular contract, but yet there is an exception called marriage. We enter into lifelong agreement of a marriage to our spouse, and we're most happy to do it. If you think about it, marriage is that same thing. Same type of agreement, the same kind of arrangement. When we get married, we have no idea what type of requests or expectations our spouse might have. Even if we know each other quite well before we marry, there's always parts of our personality that don't really surface until after the marriage, until we're really comfortable with each other. And we know that we change over time. People evolve. And we expect that our spouse's desires will likely change as well. Another great one that comes to mind, I think also from Groucho Marx, something like this. Men marry women hoping they'll never change. Women marry the men hoping they surely will change. The men never change. The women always do. Again, jokes aside, the point I'm saying is the very definition of marriage is that no matter what our spouse might need, no matter how much they change and evolve, unless, of course, there are exceptions of toxicity, if there's a, a bad relationship where it's literally dangerous, different kind of story. But in a normal, healthy marital relationship, we're committed to each other. That's what marriage is. It's a lifetime contractual agreement of service, and we're happy to take it on. That is exactly the same story of our ancestors accepting the Torah, which we do to this day. Why? Because marriage is not a commitment to some kind of a service. It's a connection with our beloved. And because they are touched at the core by each other's core, a husband and wife don't see doing things for each other 
as some kind of a burden, as a chore. It's an opportunity to make each other happy. That's what lovebirds do. How do you like the sound effects of our lovebirds? The greatest gift you can give to the person who loves you is the chance to make you happy. And of course, we want to make our spouse happy. The greatest present we could give our loved one is our presence. The greatest gift that one can give the other is the opportunity to make each other happy. Marriage isn't a sentence that robs us of our freedom. They say, what's the longest two-word sentence? I do. Marriage is a platform that grants us the deepest form of freedom. The freedom to touch another on the deepest level and to be touched by another on the deepest level. When we ask a stranger for a favor, well, the stranger is usually focused on the favor. And so it could be a burden for a stranger. But when we ask our spouse for a favor, our spouse is focused on us. It's a privilege. It's an honor. It's a delight. When we ask our spouses to go to the store and return something we purchased, we're not asking them to save us a trip. We're asking to connect with them in a very real deep way. And therefore, when they perform an act of service, even something mundane, they don't see it as an errand. They see it as an opportunity to attach themselves to us, to fulfill our deepest desire, which is to connect with them. In a marriage, it's not about the errand. It's about the connection. Every act of service deepens the connection. When our spouses go out into a stormy night to do something for us, they're proclaiming how much they we mean to them. When our spouse returns, we recognize how much they mean to us. The natural result is a deepening of our relationship and a, an affirmation of our mutual love for each other. Rabbi Wabai Jacobson is my former teacher. Remember a story he told about when he was once traveling a long distant trip and the fellow sitting next to him on the plane, they had some nice conversations together, enjoyed each other's company. And at the end of the long flight, they, when they landed, Rabbi Jacobson pulled out his phone to call his wife and, you know, tell her that he's landed. The fellow next to him, he looked around the plane. He noticed how most of the people were on their phone, texting, WhatsApping, whatever it was. And he, he commented that he seems to be the only free person on the plane. Everyone else was tethered to someone. They had to call them. They had to message them. And he's the only person who was free to come and go as he pleased. And Rabbi Jacobson relates that he looked at the fellow and he thought, you know, it's true that you don't need to report to anyone. But in return, is there anyone in the world who cares that you landed? Who cares where you are? Think about how crushingly lonely that is. How sad. When God introduced himself to us at Mount Sinai, Hashem offered a relationship to us, with us, on the most deepest level. Hashem put His happiness in our hands by giving us actionable ways to make Him happy. In God's words, I take pleasure when I ask and my will is done. 
the commandments aren't just the right way to behave. They're not just acts that perfect ourselves in the environment. They are acts of service that bring us closer. These are entry points through which we connect with Hashem. And when Hashem offered us the lists of do's and don'ts, we embraced it all at once. We took all Ten Commandments, in fact, all 613 mitzvahs. We didn't see them as burdens because we saw them for what they are. The way in which we can have a genuine relationship with God, that's exactly what it is, as Kabbalah and Hasidus explain. God was telling us that our behavior matters to Him because we matter to Him. Of all creatures in the higher, lower realms in the whole universe, we alone matter to God. We alone can make God, so to say, happy or sad. And this is a unique distinction. And we see it as an immense privilege. It wouldn't matter if God asked us to chop wood or dance in our heads. The particulars really make little difference. That it would make him happy is all that would matter. And this is why our ancestors accepted the offer without even checking the contract. When it comes to entering into a relationship with God, to make God happy, like we can make our spouse, Kaviyachal, happy, and no request is too great. No instruction is too difficult. God asked every nation, would you receive the Torah? And everyone had a different reason, an excuse, why they were reluctant, why they refused to accept. Yet, our ancestors didn't focus on the content. They said, Nasev and Ishma. They focused on the Torah and we focused on the my, this relationship with God that each of us can have. That is exactly the same relationship. And this is what we do on Shavuos. We reaffirm those, that vow, that commitment that our ancestors made so long ago. And so, when God introduced himself to us, God selected 10 out of those 613 commandments to present at Mount Sinai. The 10 commandments include prohibitions against murder and theft. And of course, while we recognize the infinite value of life and the horrible crime of taking a life, we can't help but wonder, why does this belong in the Ten Commandments? Is that, are those fundamental principles of our faith? Now, I'm not going to sit or give you a long share. We only got limited time here on this show today. But <laughs> one answer is that the Ten Commandments do not seek to convey the ten most important commandments in the Torah. They lay out the ingredients of a relationship. Right? We said that God wants a personal relationship with every single one of us. Now, there are different types of people, right? There are those who enjoy things that maybe God doesn't enjoy. There are people who are inclined towards murder, murder believe it or not. And there are plenty of people who don't have a hard time with theft or adultery or dishonesty or Jealousy. It's the nature of the beast. God created us. God programmed us. God knows exactly who he's talking to. After all, he's the one who made us. So, God wasn't only talking to the righteous, saintly amongst us. God was talking to each and every single one of us, to all Jews. Every single Jew that would ever exist. 
even those inclined to murder, they were all invited into a relationship with God's very essence. The lowest of the low. Someone who might otherwise murder and pillage. Yet, that same individual, in fact, every single one of us is that type of individual who has that potential to go in either way. We could touch God in this intimate way if we put aside our evil inclination or whatever inclination it might be in whatever direction we might go and decide to make God happy. And so, when we curb our desire, our enthusiasm to whatever it might be, to steal or cheat, because I want to make God happy. And God is touched on the highest level. And Hasidus talks about this. You think, can something so small, something seemingly so trivial, touch God? Are we heroes for simply not being villains? And the answer is that there's much to be admired about setting aside whatever characteristics, behaviors that we have, because it makes God happy. Now, of course, that's only the first step. At Mount Sinai, God showed us that a second step is possible too. If we continue to associate the thrill of making God happy with curbing our sinful desires, then we might over time actually develop a taste for proper behavior. We'll detest not just avoid revenge and anger and hatred because God, whom we love, detests it just like in our relationships. We want to do things that make our spouse happy. We want to avoid behaviors that will annoy and certainly those that would harm or insult our spouse. So we come to to enjoy, not just engage in behaviors that our spouse likes. And so the same with God. Just we want to be forgiving and peaceful and loving because God whom we love enjoys these characteristics, these behaviors. And we will enjoy the very things that God enjoys. And this is the vision that God set forth in the Ten Commandments. God says, I want a loving relationship with every one of you. The highest and the lowest. I'll come down to your level. I'll enable everyone to connect. But I also hope that one day you'll be able to rise to my level. And this is the theme of Matan Torah. As the Medrash puts it, prior to giving the Torah, it can be compared to a king who decreed that the people of Rome cannot go to Syria, and the people of Syria cannot come to Rome. So too says the Medrash, when God created the world, Hashem said, Hashemayim, Shemayim Hashem, that the heavenly realm would be the godly spiritual domain, the Haaretz Livnei Adam, and earth would be the human domain. And then, when God wished to give the Torah, Hashem rescinded that decree and Hashem said that the lower realms can ascend to the higher, the higher realms can ascend to the lower. And God says, I will be the first. And thinking about this teaching, this is something the Medrash tells us about the giving of the Torah. It was only, before God gave the Torah, it was only the Abrahams and Sarahs, the people who dwelt in more spiritually inclined ways who were able to connect with God. The average person wasn't able to have that kind of a relationship with Hashem. But with the giving of the Torah, God broke that monopoly. God broke the divide, the gap between above and below. Even the lowest of the low, people who might otherwise be inclined to murder, 
would now be invited into a relationship with Hashem. God placed His happiness in the hands of all Jews, even a person who might otherwise be inclined to all types of morally debased behaviors. But by refraining from bad acts, that brings God pleasure. And God would hope that even this individual Jew might eventually develop a higher regard for life, for God's desires as well. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi, FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiedman, and it's great to be with you here this amazing afternoon. And we are talking about getting ready for the upcoming exciting holiday of Shavuos, which we talked about is in a sense the most fundamental, significant Jewish holiday of the year. It's the day that we became the Jewish nation, the day that God gave us the Torah. We talked about so much, but one of the most important, most wonderful Parts, gifts that God gave us at Mount Sinai, of course, was the Ten Commandments. And we know that the Ten Commandments God gave us on two tablets. Why was that? Could one tablet not have been enough? Why do we need two separate tablets? Now, forget the joke that we said, if it's free, we'll take two. We discussed some very important points. We said that God offered a personal relationship with us, with every single one of us. Even individuals who perhaps are inclined to the most morally debased characteristics and behaviors, maybe even to murder, God forbid, that individual is capable of abstaining from those characteristics, from that inclination to make God happy as you would make your spouse happy. And even those, the lowest of individuals can develop a high regard for the Torah. Any person, you know, we celebrated Lag Ba'omer last week when we commemorated the death of 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva, who was their teacher, was a person who had a late start and a person who never despaired, never gave up. So every one of us can take that message and the lesson that not only not to despair, don't give up, but the greatness that we could achieve. And so this is a very important lesson as we get ready for Shavuos, that regardless what state we might be in, regardless of our past, there's so much we can achieve. And so I want to try to highlight this through the shape and the purpose, the reason why two separate tablets and not just one. Now, if you look at the tablets, I know in our shul we have them displayed in the front, as most shuls do. And on the two tablets, you see on the first side, on the right side, let's call it, because in Hebrew we read from right to left, we have the first five commandments that address deep spiritual and theological concepts, I should say, mostly. Whereas the second group addresses the more base elements of human nature. The right side, the first four commandments at least, are between man and God. 
And then number five and the rest are about interpersonal relationships that shape a moral society. So let's just review them quickly to make sure we all know what we're talking about. Commandment number one, I am the Lord your God. It's about belief. Number two, you should have no other gods before me. Don't worship idols. Number three, don't blaspheme. Don't use God's name in vain. Number four, observe the Shabbos and keep it holy. Number five, honoring your parents. And of course, people wonder if the first five are more ritualistic, are more about spiritual theological concepts, then why is number five in the same row rather than the more social, interpersonal? And of course, there are various answers, but just one or two ideas that come to mind. We know that the rules of the Torah, we learn them from our parents. And our ability to accept what they teach us depends on respecting them. So the first thing is that it's our parents who teach us the laws. And it's from them. They are the ones who guide us and give us our moral compass. So that is also on the divine on the theological side. You could also say that by respecting our parents, it teaches us the art of gratitude. That when we learn to acknowledge our physical benefactors, who brought us into this world, right? We also become more aware that we should be, we should acknowledge, we should be grateful to God, who is our spiritual benefactor, who created the whole world. So while it's our parents who gave us our physical, biological life, it is God who sustains the entire universe. And so the idea to respect our parents is as paramount as our belief and respect of Hashem. So that's the first side. Belief in God, don't worship idols, don't blaspheme, observe Shabbos and honor our parents. Let's go to the second set, the left side and there are the more interpersonal, social, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet, don't be jealous of others. So when we divide, when you look at it as two sets of commandments and on two different tablets, perhaps God was telling us that he's speaking to every single individual. Every single one of us, the Torah has a message and a lesson for each of us. And so whether we are spiritually minded or maybe at least superficially not so spiritually inclined, not interested in these deeper theological ideas like the first five commandments, the idea then is that Hashem says, I'm talking to every single Jew. God spoke to every personality. And like we discussed before, God wants a personal relationship with each and every single one of us, regardless of our inclination. So as we learn and discuss that pe even people inclined to things as theft and murder, everyone could learn to abstain from those immoral, unethical behaviors when they realize how happy God would be if they were to hold back because you're doing it for God's sake. And by lining up the first set of tablets of the commandments with the second set, 
God proclaimed that the first set can inspire us to keep the second set. I am Hashem, your God. Just look at a set of tablets at the Luchas. It's lined up on the left side, on the interpersonal side, against don't murder. Because killing a person who is created in the divine image is like killing the divine image. It's akin to murdering God, the one who made man. And so by juxtaposing the two, God proclaimed that even if you're inclined to murder, God forbid, you could overcome that if you realize that I, God, would be happy if you didn't do that. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that rational reason to avoid murder. You know, it's it's good that we understand what we shouldn't murder just with our own minds. You know, it's that, that, that's wonderful. But it's not enough that we rationally understand not to murder. Okay? If a person... Um, avoids murder for rational reasons, then they can contrive rational justifications to make occasional exceptions for murder, which, as we know, very cultured nations have done in the past. The Nazis, how many Jews they murdered, yet they were such a cultured people. So if you're avoiding these things because God wants you to, that you can never rationalize an exception for it. We're just talking here, just to recap that idea, that man is created in the divine image. Don't murder is lined up with I'm the Lord your God, because every single person is created in God's image. Let's think of commandment number two, don't worship idols. That is lined up against, on the left side, don't commit adultery. Basically, what you might be able to say is, that even if a person's inclined to, to adultery, they could overcome it if they realize that Hashem, that I, God, would be hurt. And so our relationship with Hashem is like a marriage. And if you were to, to, if you were to, to uh, violate, to betray your, your partner, your spouse, then it's like betraying God. Like Shavuos is about our marriage with Hashem. And we have to realize that our own relationships mirror our relationship with God. And by betraying our spouse, we're betraying God. Commandment number three on the right side, don't take God's name in vain. Again, it's lined up against don't steal, don't take what's not yours. God is saying that Hashem assigned each item in this world to its rightful owner. And if you take what's not yours, it's like taking a part of God unjustly. So even if a person's inclined to theft, for whatever reason, they're kleptomaniacs, it's in their nature, who knows? God's saying, I beseech you not to. If you realize that, that I, God, would be hurt by your actions. So don't take God's name in vain and don't take what's not yours as it's not yours. Right and left, lining up with each other. Number four, to observe Shabbos. That's lined up against don't bear false witness. God's saying, I placed you on earth to testify my existence as the creator of this world. Something you do by working for six days and resting 
on Shabbos, the seventh, when we recite Vayichulu, we are bearing testimony to God's creating the world and resting on the seventh. And so you could see how the two line up with each other.